Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Pros. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Pros is made for people not hair and skin types, personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I use the review and refine feature and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Chapter 20 Lord Voldemort's Request Harry and Ron left the hospital wing first thing on Monday morning, restored to full health by the ministrations of Madame Pomfrey, and now able to enjoy the benefits. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. I'm Casper Tekile. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. This week's episode is our last one before we take a two-week holiday break. So if you've been running behind, now is your chance to catch up. And we've got less than a week left to donate to Raices as part of our amazing Don't Be a Dursley campaign. We have set goals. You have beaten them. We've set another goal. You've beaten it again. It's been amazing to watch how our entire community has come together to support this issue. And we're so, so grateful. Thanks to anyone who's got a final donation to make in this last week. Also, Casper, did you know that my favorite director is a man named Richard Linklater and that he lives in a city (laughs) named Austin, Texas? (laughs) And I am curious if he is a member of our local group there. They are the amazing Longhorn Snorkax, and it's run by Caitlin Mims. And if you want to join a local group in Austin, go to harrypottersacredtext.com forward slash groups, where you can find their info as well as more than 55 other groups around the world now. And we're so glad to have you all with us. And Richard Linklater, if you are a listener, at me. (laughs) 
So, Casper, it is your turn to tell me a story on the theme of goodwill. What have you got for me? So, growing up in England, you know, I was English a lot of the time, but I was also Dutch. My parents are both from Holland, and we spoke Dutch at home. And so, when we were visiting my family in Holland, I always had this kind of weird experience of, like, knowing the language and the culture in a lot of ways, but also being completely not up to date with what was happening in in popular culture. It's one of the ways in which in England, I did feel like I really belonged. Like I knew, you know, Dame Judi Dench and Sir Ian McKellen. And of course, now everyone knows those, but there are these figures, like people who the country has just decided somehow that we all like, like national treasures. And moving to America, I kind of had the same experience because although a lot of countries in Europe look to America, you know, we consume American media, there were still a lot of things I didn't know. So when I first heard about Mr. Rogers, I had literally no idea who this was. I was like, who is this guy? Why is he wearing a cardigan? And it has just been such a delight to like learn from people who grew up watching him how much he meant to them. And I just thought about how these characters in our national imagination represent kind of the goodwill of who we are as people. Like we lift up these people because they help us to be the kind of nation that we want to be, to be the people that we want to be. You know, Mr. Rogers, he was a Presbyterian minister and there was so much behind these little acts of like taking off his shoes or putting his feet in the same like mini pool as his black colleague in a time when segregation was still so politically rife. And of course it continues to be. And I think we can learn a lot about a country by looking at who its national treasures are. And so with that theme of goodwill, I want to think in this chapter about like, who are we lifting up in this chapter of birthday surprises? Like who is being looked to as the kind of archetypal person to whom the whole society gives goodwill? I kind of still don't really know who the wizarding world has as its national treasure. It's so interesting that you didn't know who Mr. Rogers was. Peter and I, my partner, just had this conversation because he's from Germany. And I was like, I want to go see the new Mr. Rogers movie. And he was like, who's that, a superhero? And I was like, (laughs) sort of. (laughs) And the story that I told about Mr. Rogers is the famous one, which was that his car was stolen. Oh, wow. One day in Pittsburgh. And they announced over the radio, you know, Mr. Rogers' car was stolen. And it got returned with a note saying, I'm so sorry, Mr. Rogers. I never meant to steal your car. (laughs) And that to me is just like the iconic Mr. Rogers story that there is so much goodwill toward Mr. Rogers. That even someone like in dire enough straits to steal a car was like, but I don't want to steal a car from Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Well, and he just embodies goodwill, right? Like he just wished everyone well and therefore everyone wished him well. Do you know where goodwill gets put aside, though? (laughs) The 30 second recap. That's right. 30 seconds on the clock. Are you ready? I'm ready. Three, two, one, go. So Hermione is forgiven Ron and Harry. She's like, yeah, I'll help you with your homework again. Ron has to have this awkward conversation with Lavender. Poor Lavender. Um, Harry has to go for his lesson with Dumbledore. And the, Dumbledore is like, shame on you that you didn't take my assignment at Slughorn more seriously. And, and Harry is like, oh, you're disappointed. And that's the worst. And then um, they go into two memories. And one of them, Tom Riddle is trying to collect something. And like, that's very interesting. And then in the second memory, what happens? It's gone from my head. And the, oh, he comes to us for the defense against the Dark Eyes. <laughs> ah. That works on so many layers. What is the memory? <laughs> it like went right out of my brain. <laughs> I read this chapter this morning. This is what your late 30s look like, people. <laughs> Welcome. 
welcome. Okay, maybe you can talk a little bit about the second memory. On your mark, get set, go. Okay, so Harry is back with Dumbledore and he's going to have these two memories. And first, he sees um, uh, uh, the young Voldemort working at Bergen Books and he's like, why is he working there? And it turns out that he'd actually asked the former headmaster to be a professor at Hogwarts, but um, the, form prof- uh, the former headmaster had said no. And so then he goes and visits Hepzibah, who is an old rich witch who has a golden Hufflepuff cup and a golden Slytherin locket. And um, there's Hokey the house elf, whose memory this is. And then um, Harry sees it and then he comes back and red eyes glinting, dead. The old lady has the things, disappears. And he, the curse of D, D against DA. Curse of the da, defense against the dark arts teacher. I want a, a folk song to be written called The Old Rich Witch. The old rich witch swaved on her own. She had nice things and lots of clothes. <laughs> That's the first line. Okay, can we start with something that no matter how many times I read this chapter, I have very mixed feelings on? Yes. So Dumbledore is like... I'm not mad, I'm disappointed, right? He all but uses Harry's middle name here in his, like, non-reprimand reprimand. Yeah, I mean, he's pretty stunned. Like, he's like, did you really do everything you could? No. Yeah, well, but he doesn't say the no, which is even worse. <laughs> and Harry says, right, like, I just wish he'd yell. Yeah. And part of me is, like, props to you, Dumbledore. Like, props to you that you have so much authority that, like, he is lecturing himself, right? That Mm. Harry is like, this is what I did wrong and this is what I will do better next time. And that like Dumbledore doesn't even need to do it. Mm -hmm. And I want to say that that is goodwill that has been built up. That like all that Dumbledore needs to do is be present and just like his presence is going to be enough to like show Harry that he didn't take something seriously. The other part of me is like you are shaming this child when like you miscommunicated something. I think he made it pretty clear. I mean, the thing that wows me in this moment and where I do really see goodwill is when Harry says, I'm sorry, and Dumbledore says, we'll speak no more of it. And what Dumbledore is able to do after that moment of being reprimanding and helping Harry let go of the shame that he does feel when he's being reprimanded. Now, we should still have conversations about how fair it is to have asked this in the first place, but I actually thought it was a lovely moment to see him be able to move on so quickly and and know that Harry is doing that himself to himself and that he doesn't he doesn't need to shout he doesn't need to to shame anymore and and the rest of the meeting is very productive i think because of that goodwill yeah i don't know i think the reason that it makes me feel icky is that harry has so much goodwill toward dumbledore in this moment and it doesn't feel reciprocated like he doesn't say Yeah, it's a really hard task. And you tried. And I would imagine that trying and failing in front of a teacher is embarrassing. And that like, and you got injured and put in the hospital. And I need you to do this, too. It doesn't feel like that goodwill is reciprocated, which just feels gross to me. Yeah. And it's interesting because I do think Dumbledore phrases it as a question, right? Which is better than had it just been a statement. Like if Dumbledore had said, you didn't do your best, you didn't use everything at your disposal, right? Like if it was this kind of litany of accusations, I think it would read even more painfully. I guess goodwill is a lot of giving the benefit of the doubt. And so the fact that he does phrase it as a question of like, did you exhaust all the options that you had? At least there's some move towards that, which would have been much more painful if it had just been like statements. 
But I, I still feel like Dumbledore needs to work on his communication skills outside of the meeting times. Like, is there a regular check-in that they could have over owl post? I, I look at or even at breakfast, like, should we just have cereal together and chat? There's something about the large time gaps between the moments that they have together, which is kind of setting up the goodwill to fail. Right. And the fact that he finds out that he is meeting day of, like maybe he would have squeezed in one more attempt. Right. (laughs) I just I guess maybe your breakfast comment reminded me that it just feels entirely like Harry is a pawn and there isn't real relationship building happening. And I understand that sometimes you're too busy to do relationship building, but then you need extra goodwill and extra like benefit of the doubt and he like pretends to have a lot of goodwill towards Snape and toward you know but at the end of the day he is not very handout well I, d- I definitely agree with you that he doesn't trust a lot of people and I think that's that's a major issue I mean one question that I did genuinely have rereading it this time was why Snape wants the defense against the dark arts job when we know that there's a curse on it Oh. Right? Like, why does he want to go into a situation that he knows will end in disaster? Oh, that's so interesting. So what immediately occurred to me is that it would be the final blessing of Dumbledore. He would say, I really trust you. Uh, Like, I trust you to be so close to the thing that you most love, to the thing that is most tempting to you. It would be the equivalent of, like, Peter trusting me with a chocolate cake. (laughs) I just wonder, people who have goodwill toward all are, like, so beautiful and wonderful. And then also, I'm just like, yeah, but do you have any special goodwill toward me? Like, there's just the infant in me who finds that people who love everyone, I'm like, I don't really have time for you in my life. I don't want to just be everyone. And Dumbledore strikes me as a person like that who, like, Mm. believes in everyone but believes in no one. And so I think that you start to get into cycles with people like that sometimes of, like, this is the way that I will know that I am special to you or that you care extra about me. And I can imagine Snape saying, I will only know that you really trust me when you give me that job. That's very resonant. And I mean, it's so interesting that you point out that feeling of like making someone feel like they're special to you. Because we see that elsewhere in this chapter with Tom Riddle, right? When he goes to visit Hepzibah, which is a great biblical name. It appears twice in the Bible. And it means from the ancient Hebrew, my delight is in her. Isn't that so interesting? Because what struck me, which relates to the comment of how Dumbledore is kind of like loving everybody, not but not one person specifically, is Tom Riddle is really good at making you feel special. We see the preparation that Hepzibah has gone, you know, she's made Oki clean the house and tidy everything and make it just so, so that when the young Riddle arrives, like it's going to be a, a lovely, nice experience. He he makes her feel special. He makes her feel wanted. And she knows that in part, mostly it's about the things that she owns, but even through those things, you know, it reflects on her. And I think that's what he does with Bellatrix. I think it's what he does with individual Death Eaters. He's not good at friendship, but he is good at making you feel powerful or wanted or somehow special. Even with Draco, that must be what's happening behind the scenes. Right, which I wonder if to some extent is the opposite of goodwill, right? Which is reducing a relationship to something transactional. Mm. 
I mean, Hepzibah says it, right? Like, she is skeptical. She's like, oh, no, you have to, like, basically, you have to flirt with me longer. Yes. Or I'm going to think that you're only here for my stuff. Yes. These are two people who are entirely objectifying each other and using one another. Hepzibah is using Tom Riddle for her sense of self and, like, in a really icky older woman flirting with a much, much younger man who she has some financial control over. And then he is obviously using her entirely for her material belongings. And if Goodwill is giving someone the benefit of the doubt, these are two people who are in constant doubt of each other and who are constantly making each other prove themselves to each other, right? Oh, you have to talk to me for exactly two minutes and 42 seconds, (laughs) or I'm going to feel like you're doing X and you have to be willing to sell Y to me, or why did I come all the way out here? I am totally fine with there being certain relationships that have no goodwill. Where it makes me feel uncomfortable is when those two things get confused. Like Lyft drivers, it really confuses me. Say more. So I feel very uncomfortable in Ubers and Lyfts because it is somebody's private car. And there is this like bridging of boundaries Mm. where like one of the things you can rate the person on is whether or not it was a good conversation. And like... I don't feel comfortable necessarily having a conversation when, like, a stranger is driving me somewhere. I feel like I would rather a relationship like that be entirely transactional. I'm with you. Yeah, and it's funny how, like, different starred ratings are attempts to create a sense of goodwill. Like, oh, this person is rated a 4.8 by previous guests or previous, you know, drivers. That it's supposed to be a stand-in for that, but it's not that simple. It's funny how how we have to navigate that in that situation. So, but here is a difference. So, like Lyft, I'm like, this is a transaction. I am in an unsafe situation. You are in an unsafe situation. Let's just get through this. Hmm. But I very much grew up building relationships with people who I have repeat interactions with, even if the basis of that interaction is somewhat transactional, right? So, like your male person, pharmacist, anyone like that, anyone who I, like, see regularly, I actually build, like, a pretty close relationship with. Hmm. That is one that I believe in because that is about community. Like, if a male person doesn't come for a few days, checking in on them and seeing, like, maybe they're in ill health and maybe there's something that I can do. And, like, that to me seems like this, like, Snyder-like effort of resisting tyranny And then I just think at the end of the day, like, I am a short woman who is scared. And so there are other times that I'm like, nope, this is entirely transactional. There's something about the one-timeness of it. I think that we should be living with goodwill toward people who we have repeat relationships with or ongoing relationships with. But I think that goodwill gone too far is like naivete and dangerous. Mm. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, pros is made for people not hair and skin types, personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I used the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. So another place where we see Goodwill show up in this chapter is that we learn that Hermione is once again willing to help Harry with his herbology homework. And by helping Harry, she knows that he'll let Ron copy off him. And so in effect, she's again helping Ron, which is a major rapprochement, to use a little French word, having had this kind of icy uh, period between the two of them. And it's interesting to think about, would she have let Ron copy her directly Is her goodwill, has it extended that far again? I'm not sure, but it has extended far enough that she'll let Harry, who she knows will let Ron. You know what I mean? So like, there's also something funny about like grades of goodwill and how public is the goodwill and that kind of stuff, I think does show up in that little moment. Yes. There's another coded aspect of this, which is that she is saying to Harry, I will look over your essay when really they both know that she's actually going to finish his essay. That's right. And so the codedness around Goodwill is really interesting to me, too. Mm. The ways that we are willing to accept the kindness of some people, but only if we pretend that it's this kind of kindness and not that kind of kindness. And I think what we see both with Hepzibah and with Hermione is that sometimes there's a tragedy with Goodwill that we only know how to show it in a certain way. Because I I think what Hermione is doing here is like she wants to make real this moment of rapprochement that's happened, this this coming back together. And the way she knows how to do that is to help with homework. And and maybe even the way that Harry knows to signal that is to ask for it. And I think with Hepzibah, like she's someone who's very wealthy. And so maybe the only way that she knows to build a connection with someone is to be like, look at the things that I own, right? It's nothing about me. It's nothing about anything I'm particularly good at in that case. It's just what I own. So I think in some ways we also learn how to give and receive goodwill in ways that limit us, right? Yeah, I think there's such wisdom in that. I think that often when I feel goodwill towards someone who I don't have a deep relationship with, I want to prove it. Yes. And like offer them something. And I get myself into trouble with like not even over promising because it's so vague, but there's just this like 
feeling of goodwill that I want to back up and that all it is at the end of the day is sort of like good wishes and I'm I'm rooting for you. And I think that something that you model with your life is that what to do in those moments is to build relationship, right? That the offering is I want to be in relationship with you and sort of believing that we are enough and our time and attention is enough. But really, we all want this golden Slytherin locket or the Hufflepuff cup. I mean, that's what I really want. (laughs) Can I take you to another place where I was struck by kind of a shadow of goodwill? There's this moment where suddenly Luna shows up and Harry, Hermione and Ron are together. And Ron says, oh, your commentary was awesome, right? Because he he so enjoyed it from the hospital bed. And Luna says, you're making fun of me, aren't you? Because clearly so many people have been laughing at her and that her commentary was bad and everything else. And I don't know if this is my reading or if it's actually in the text, but I didn't read it with any resentment. And I wonder if it's actually something about goodwill. Like what she has is that she never suspects nastiness to the point perhaps of naivete exactly like you were saying but like with the missing items and her shoes like she she's not angry she's not bitter she's not resentful or suspicious like her question of you're making fun of me aren't you isn't one of like you're being cruel or or, or accusatory she's literally trying to understand is that what ron is doing and she's right to ask because ron then says no i genuinely loved it (laughs) so there's something about luna and this theme of goodwill that was so important to me in this chapter I think you're exactly right. I think Luna is really asking. And I think that it's so generous that she's asking and also to me speaks of some woundedness Mm. that enough people have mocked her that she's like, you're making fun of me, aren't you? That the safe way to ask it is to assume that he's being cruel. Mm. And she doesn't want to believe it until she's absolutely sure that that's what's happening. So do do you think the last few years have changed, Luna? I do. I also think that she's learned not to trust Ron specifically. (laughs) Like she really thinks he's funny and she's laughing at every single one of his jokes when they first meet. And then she's had this moment in the last book where she says like he's funny, but he's not always kind. And this might be actually a rebuilding moment for the two of them, you know, because I do Mm. think that they become great allies, especially in book seven. Maybe by asking Ron and not assuming he's being a jerk, even though everybody else is, that that is the extension of goodwill. Mm. She's like, I'm going to give you a chance to tell me no or to have to say, yeah, I'm making fun of you and like expose yourself as a jerk publicly. But I'm going to give you the opportunity to be like, no, I thought you were great. I hadn't even seen it within that bigger arc. And I think you're so right. I think you're so right. So the the final place in the chapter where I'm like, is there any goodwill here? Is Voldemort or, or Riddle's constant desire to come back to Hogwarts. Harry recognizes that feeling that this is the only place that, that Riddle has ever felt like was home. And I wonder even if there's a difference between the first time that he asks and the second time that he asks, that by the first time that he asks, is there some part of him that is still hoping or thinks it's possible that he could be great because he wants to be great but do it in a way that doesn't involve him killing hundreds of people i think by the second time he asks that's gone right like we can see how his physical shape has already been so changed which is an outward representation of this inward horcrux making and dumbledore pretty quickly unravels you know his desire that it's just about strategic access to a future army but in that first that first question of returning, is there something of goodwill, even if it's wrapped up in all sorts of other things? 
And here's the other thing. Even if somebody doesn't have goodwill, do they still have the capacity to be changed, right? Mm. Like kindness. And I mean, I'm reminded of Jean Valjean who like goes into that house, you know, the priest's house to steal, right, To, to a large extent. And then gets treated so kindly that he is profoundly changed by the experience. So, you know, we'll never know because he was turned away. I will say that it becomes very complicated because I agree that an 18-year-old teaching 17-year-olds would not be appropriate. So I think that they were right not to hire him for that reason. And then also, I, you know, as I have come down very hard on Snape, I, like, don't think extending goodwill to a teacher by exposing a potentially harmful person to students is an acceptable risk to take, mm. right? I think at the end of the day, it is a, teach- uh, a headmaster's job to protect the students. Right. I don't think that Voldemort at this point had a ton of goodwill, but I'm very interested in the idea that he could have still potentially been changed mm. and that Dumbledore, by being afraid of himself— And his own seeking of power has closed himself off so much that he missed an opportunity with Riddle. Yeah. And that Hogwarts failed him, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, but but really, like, when we think of the Harry Potter books, we think of the trio. We think of the students that that Hogwarts has succeeded. But the books are littered with people who have been failed, whether it's Hagrid or Moaning Myrtle or Tom Riddle. And even the ones who have been shaped by the institution in a way that we could be proud of, often have forged their own way, right? Think of Neville or even the the Weasley twins, right? Like I'm just seeing more and more like my focus on how this institution still has the goodwill of wizarding society when in so many ways it does not warrant it anymore. Like yeah. the place is ready for a management shakeup. <laughs> yeah, I wonder about that in my own life. And sometimes, you know, again, I think this gets back to like, a boundary conversation or like sometimes pulling away your goodwill matters, you know, saying Hogwarts, you've stopped doing well. And yeah, I think sometimes removing your goodwill is a way to show like I don't condone that behavior. It actually changes the way I think about the parents who want to take the kids out of the school. Like usually when I read those bits, I'm like, oh, come on, parents, don't overreact. Stay in school. Be right. cool. Yeah, be cool. Like Hogwarts is awesome. And now I'm like, you know what? This is actually, it's not just an act of I want to keep my kids safe after the latest attack on Katie Bell or someone. But maybe it's also a political signal of like, I'm not sure this institution is worthy of my goodwill anymore. And we never learn about the alternatives, right? Do they get sent to Bobaton or or to Durmstrang or do they get homeschooled? Like, we don't know. But it is interesting to see, like, there are moments, like, think of a run on the bank, right? When enough people say, "I this institution does not feel safe. I, I, I'm not going to give it my goodwill anymore. I'm going to take what's mine out of it. And when it's organized like a strike, it can be an amazingly powerful tool for change and just shows that Hogwarts also needs stronger PTA committees <laughs> for, for parents yes. to be able to exercise their influence on the school. I will say there's one final place in this chapter which made me smile, which is, you know, Harry has heard how Hokey's been wrongfully convicted of poisoning Hepzibah. And he says he had rarely felt more in sympathy with the society Hermione had set up, SPW, SPU. And that's just a lovely moment where I think sometimes in our friendships, you know, in the moment when something's happening, like, what is going on? This friend is way over-involved or like cares too much about this thing or it's weird. And here's this sweet moment where there's this gush of goodwill from Harry to Hermione where he's like, you know what? I now see more of what you see and you're right. It's why kids go on field trips, right? It's like you don't care about the trees and then you see trees and you're like, oh, my God, trees. Mm. 
Hogwarts should have more field trips, even if it's into other people's memories. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not just in other people's memories. <laughs> So, Casper, today we are going to do Sacred Imagination. It is our last Sacred Imagination for a little while, so I would like to invite everybody to Sacred Imagine as hard as you possibly can. Like, leave nothing on the field for next week because there won't be a Sacred Imagination next week. So I would like to invite everybody to really put your feet on the floor, close your eyes if you can. I'm going to take us into a moment between Hokey and Hepzibah and Harry and Dumbledore are obviously watching, but I would really like to invite you to be in the memories, so to be either Hokey or Hepzibah, and imagine yourself into the scene. What are you feeling? What are you smelling? What are you experiencing in this moment? Hurry up, Hokey, said Hepzibah imperiously. He said he'd come at four. It's only a couple of minutes, too, and he's never been late yet. She tucked away her powder puff as the house elf straightened up. The top of the elf's head barely reached the seat of Hepzibah's chair, and her papery skin hung off her frame, just like the crisp linen sheet she wore draped like a toga. How do I look, said Hepzibah, turning her head to admire the various angles of her face in the mirror. Lovely, madam, squeaked Hokey. Harry could only assume that it was down in Hokey's contract that she must lie through her teeth when asked this question because Hepzibah Smith looked a long way from lovely in his opinion. A tinkling doorbell rang, and both mistress and elf jumped. Quick, quick, he's here, Hokey, cried Hepzibah, and the elf scurried out of the room, which was so crammed with objects that it was difficult to see how anybody could navigate their way across it without knocking over at least a dozen things. There were cabinets full of lacquered boxes, cases full of gold-embossed books, Shelves of orbs, celestial globes, and many flourishing potted plants in brass containers. In fact, the room looked like a cross between a magical antique shop and a conservatory. The house elf returned within minutes, followed by a tall young man Harry had no difficulty whatsoever in recognizing as Voldemort. I mean, the first thing that I noticed this time was the green of the room, like the potted plants, I'd missed that in my previous readings. I'd seen quite a stuffy space, but actually now it looked more like, I don't know, like a jungle in a room. You know, the way things are like really crammed together. That was kind of cool. I, I think what I felt hearing it was I, I tried to imagine myself being hokey telling Dumbledore many, many years later, having been imprisoned for the, the murder of my mistress. And, you know, we hear from Harry that he thinks hokey is lying, that when she's asked, how do I look? And I wonder if actually she's telling the truth. That was the exact thought I had. Right? I think she thinks Hepzibah looks lovely. And there are so many problems with the kind of slave relationship here between Hepzibah and Hoki. But this moment seems more sincere than I'd ever encountered it before. It's funny. You have the same thing. Yeah. It just struck me. I mean, obviously, it's different because Hoki is enslaved. But it, it reminds me of people who live in and take care of elderly people. Mm. I would imagine that if you are a nurse to an elderly person who doesn't get a lot of visitors, 
any time that they are excited that someone is coming to visit, that they are putting on makeup, that it like breaks up the monotony of your routine together, that they feel like inspired to shower and present a best version of themselves, that you do think that they're beautiful and that Hokey looks forward to Voldemort's visits because it's like some deviation from their usual life together. And Mm. I just like experienced this as like a sweet, you know, sad, but a slightly sweet moment for Hokey full of just a little bit of promise. Well, and it also for me massively changes how I react to Hepsidus murder because in this chapter, it's such a sideshow. I mean, it's a convenient little fact in which we learn more about Voldemort. Like Hepsida is just clothing to the scene. And this this moment that we see between Hepsida and Hoki actually makes makes both of them so much more human and the killing of Hepsida all the more horrible. I don't know. I just, I really felt the sadness in this, you know, one of the last interactions that they'll have, you know, two days later, she's dead. Yeah, this is going to be one of the last memories Hoki carries with her as she enters Azkaban. I'm trying to imagine myself into Hepzibah as well. Mm. I don't know why. I'm just suddenly really struck with the idea of her being an elderly person who's sort of forgotten in a nursing home. Or, Mm. you know, I, I just think that the way that we treat the elderly in the West is an abomination. And, like, this is a woman who's trying to matter. And she's trying to stay relevant mm. to this young man. And I know I I was judging her earlier for the way that she was using Voldemort. And I, I do think that that is gross. But I also think that she used to be someone who was sort of a mover and a shaker and buying and selling things and negotiating and out and about. And now it seems as though it, from the description that, her, you know, and we don't really know, but it sounds like this house is her whole life now. Yeah. Hokey is her only confidant. And it just made me incredibly sad and sad for the state that, like, we expect people of a certain age to just, like, become invisible to us so we don't have to think about them. Yeah, and that the only thing that's value about them is what they have and what they right. own, right? Like, I'm sure not only does she have, like, wonderful stories, but just who she is, right? Like, who she's become would be a presence that would be valuable um well she certainly seems to have been like a woman in business right she was collecting these rare items you know 50 years ago yeah there's so much that we don't know and we never will know about her imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's voicemail is from Jordan. Hi, Ariana, Casper, and Vanessa. My name is Jordan, and I am from Cupertino, California. I'm calling in response to your episode you just did on resistance. The thing I've had to resist and push back on my entire life is the idea people have of what it looks like to be blind. There are a lot of preconceived notions and stereotypes where if you're blind, you have zero vision, you use a guide dog and have a white cane and dark glasses. And these are just not true for all blind people. I don't use a cane all the time. I don't have a guide dog, and I can get around by myself for the most part. But society has some very, very firm ideas of what my life needs to look like as a blind person. One of the ways I resisted the stereotypes of what blindness means and what people can do is when I turned 16. Though, because of my vision loss, I cannot drive a car. I will never legally be able to drive. And missing that milestone was really, really painful for me. So to push back on what society says I'm allowed to do and what milestones I'm even allowed to have, instead of learning how to drive a car at 16, I jumped out of an airplane for the first time. I didn't want my life to be limited by someone else's expectations in that moment. I wanted to prove I was capable of much more. There are many things I have to rearrange my life around being blind, where I live, the jobs I'm able to do are all dictated by my vision loss. But I refuse to let it dictate who I am and what I'm allowed to accomplish in my life. I wanted to give a blessing for anybody willing to push past the expectations and limitations put on them. And for the people who are willing to make their own opportunities where it doesn't look like any other exists. Thank you for all you do. I love listening to this podcast so much. It's such a bright part of my day. Jordan, that is a legit badass move. I am... I just have horrible like heights things like my hands just start sweating. So the idea of like jumping out, (laughs) I love your uh, taking a moment that should have been a realization of limits or something and being like, oh, no, let me show you. That's incredible. Congrats. (laughs) Please don't make me come with you. (laughs) So Casper, it is now time to bless somebody in this chapter. Who would you like to bless? It's a very small moment, but as Harry enters Dumbledore's office, we meet Trelawney and she is clearly frustrated about co-teaching and co-teaching is hard. So I get it. But she describes Forense as a usurping nag. I just, it's hard when you hear cruelty like that, especially to someone like Forense, who's been so brave and has shown such goodwill by protecting Harry and, and being willing to risk being thrown out of his own context and culture and and home. I really felt for him. I was like, my God, this is what he has to put up with explicitly from Trelawney. But like, who knows what else, you know, from students, from the staff, like he must be extremely lonely. And so for anyone who's in a context where they don't feel like they fit in or they're not appreciated or they're lonely, I just wish, you know, every goodness and every confidence that, you know, you've chosen to be here for a reason and that 
there are people who appreciate and recognize you for that. How about you, Vanessa? Who are you blessing this week? I would like to bless Ginny Weasley. Mm. Her boyfriend makes fun of Harry for looking stupid after he'd been attacked. And she is like, that's not funny. Don't laugh at that. And is like willing to get in a fight for someone else being like a bully and a jerk. And I think that that is how we teach each other and how we grow and learn. Moments where like people are laughing at something and you just like don't laugh are awesome moments of power. And Ginny, as always, is claiming her full power and has awakened a monster inside Harry. (laughs) You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about the episode. Or you can come and join our community of people who are supporting us on Patreon. We're going to be on holiday break for the next two weeks, and then we're going to return with an owl post on January 9th with Burns Stanfield, a wonderful minister. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producers, Ariana Nettleman. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. And we are part of Nightvale Presents. Thanks to Jordan for this week's voicemail, to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and of course, Stephanie Fulcell. We'll see you all after the holiday break. And a happy 2020, everyone. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. So here's a big question for you, Casper. Do we count Julie Andrews as a British national treasure or an American one? I mean, is she the rare person who can cross both? Because I feel like she should. No, I want her for my own. (laughs) Perhaps I had a wicked childhood. (laughs)